Good morning, Grace. My name is Brandon Roa, and for those of you who don't know me, I co-lead the middle school ministry with um, Johanna Turner, and uh, I'm really excited and, and honored to be sharing with you this morning. Um, I love scripture. I, 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 I um, am often captivated, captivated by it. Um, a couple years ago, I graduated from, from Biola University with a degree in biblical studies, and um, I just, I, I love the Bible. I think it's incredibly cinematic and, and poetic and, and dramatic, and, and not only is not only is it all that, it, is it uh, a really amazing piece of art in a sense, but, but, but it's also true and, and powerful and relevant and, and gripping and, and, it's, and it's living and active and, and the Bible says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning and when Daniel and I first started um, talking about what, what this might look like, what, what this sermon might be about, uh, one of the initial ideas I had was about these verses that we just heard read from the book of Revelation. Um, 2020 has been probably a pretty rough year for a lot of us, and uh, at times it's, it's, it's just felt like, like, like life was put on pause, and, and, and it's just, it, it just keeps getting suspended and suspended and, and suspended, like, like we're just living in limbo and waiting for, for someone to hit play and for us to be able to, to pick up and resume life as it was again. And yet that just doesn't seem to be happening. It feels like, it feels like the, 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 the return to normal just keeps getting pushed farther and farther and farther back. And, and I don't know about for you, but for me, there have been a lot of moments, of honestly, just hopelessness. And, and, and yeah, just, just no hope. And so um, th- these verses for me over the last month, month and a half have actually been um, really refreshing and encouraging and, and nourishing for, for my soul because it just, it, it cuts through the noise, and, and they have just um, been a reminder to me of, of where this is all going, and what it's all about, and what the end of the story is. So I hope this morning that as we unpack these verses, that, that, they, that they'll be that for you too, that they'll be a source of um, encouragement and nourishment for your soul, and, and a, a source of rest and refreshment. But as I'm sure, as, as many of us are probably aware, the book of Revelation has a bit of a complicated past. It, 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 it can feel scary at times or, or uh, complicated or, or confusing and, or, or unclear at best. Um, and, and, and I lament that because I, I think that that means that we've lost sight of what, what John's original encouragement and, and exhortation to his readers was. So what I hope to do this morning is, is to reclaim a little bit of that, a little bit of, the, uh, of what I think that original message was. Um, but before we begin... I just want to start with a couple of introductory remarks about how we're going to sort of proceed with, with, with reading the text. Um, so the, the first point I want to make is, is just this. The book of Revelation is both a letter that John wrote to, to, to real Christians in, in the first century in, in the Roman Empire, and it's also a work of Jewish apocalyptic literature. And so we need to read it as such. We need to read it as both. So what does it mean to read it as a letter? It, it means to, 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 to have that understanding that, that John wrote this to real people sometime between probably 60 and 70 AD, uh, suffering persecution in, in the Roman Empire, and that, and that these were real words that, that a real person wrote to, to, wrote to other real people, and, and they understood them in, in a particular way. And so for us to understand how, how they sort of apply and, and fit in and relate to our lives, we need, to, we need to understand that first. We need to constantly be asking the question, um, what, what, what did this mean to its original audience? And secondly, it's a work of Jewish apocalyptic literature. And um, 
so we need to ask the question, well, what does it mean to read, what does it mean to read that? And probably more fundamentally for most of us, the question is, well, okay, well, what the heck is that? And, 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 and it, apocalyptic literature is simply this. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that there is a reality greater than what happens purely in the physical or natural world. And that John is going to be pulling back the curtain on that world. The book of Revelation is, is, fitting, uh, is fittingly a, a revealing of, of that reality, of that transcendent reality. So if that's what apocalyptic literature is, well then how do we read it? Well, the book of Revelation is filled with, with strike, striking and at times even startling or, or horrifying or scary images. Um, and so in order to read this text, we'll need to do the work of understanding what, what those things represent. And how do we do that? Well, this might not come as a, as a, as a surprise to you, but I think that we read the Bible um, the book of Revelation has, has 404 verses, and in those 404 verses, it contains 518 references to prior scripture. 518 references in 404 verses. Interestingly enough, it doesn't actually include any direct quotations from prior scripture. It, can, it, it, it has 518 uh, um, references, though. And so, so if we're going to understand this text, then, then we need to understand uh, uh, those texts that came before, and specifically... The books that, that, that John leans on the most are Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Exodus. So we need to understand those texts first. And if we don't, then we run the risk of, of misusing the text and, and, and misinterpreting it and, and, and trying to make it do things that it's not meant to do. And, and this should make sense because, because we would never not do this in, in our regular life. We would never uh, presume to read the last book of any series, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, without reading what comes before. That would be silly. No one would do that. And, and it's the same thing with, with the Bible. In, in order to understand this text, we need to understand what came before. And so as, as we dive into the text, what you'll see is that we're, we're going to constantly be referencing back to Old Testament Scripture. We're going to be constantly be looking back at how the symbols and the images and the languages and the, the, the language and, and the idea that and the ideas, excuse me, that, that, that John is using, um, are informed by by what came before. And so, with that in mind, let, let, let's jump into the text. Uh, in verse one, John says, "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, and there was no longer any sea." I think one of the awesome gifts that, that we often take for granted that, that God has given us is our imagination. Um, and it's because through our imagination, we get to experience all kinds of crazy things that, that we could probably never experience in our normal daily life. We can, we can experience all kinds of different cultures and, and countries and experiences and, and, and magical worlds and, and, and different kinds of beings and all these different things um, through, through literature and through, through film and through, through um, art and music. And it's a really amazing thing, but... but, but um, the thing that I think is so amazing about it here is that, is that in this moment, what we get to experience a little bit of with John is, is not just some fictional reality that, that, that some person has imagined in their head, but what we get to experience with John here is the moment where, where, where he witnesses the creation of the new heaven and new earth. That is amazing. That is amazing. And, and so as we read these, these four verses this morning, um, 
If you'll, I'd like you to join me in, in just trying to imagine what, what, what must John have felt in these moments? What, and, and, and hopefully together we'll get, we'll get to taste a little bit of the joy and the delight and the, and the excitement and the, and the wonder and awe that John must have felt as, as he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And, and in this verse, John makes kind of an, an interesting comment at the end of it, doesn't he? He says that there was no longer any sea. And that feels a bit random. I mean, I suppose, I don't know, I, I assume there would be other things to do in heaven. I don't know, maybe you could go for a hike or something. If you and I read this in sort of our, our casual quiet time, we'd probably just pass over it. I don't know what that means, whatever. Um, but but, but I, I, would, I would expect that you probably um, have a feeling that John's not talking about a, a literal sea here, is he? No, see, what John is doing here is he's actually picking up um, on, on a tradition uh, um, in, in the Jewish Old Testament of, of um, apocalyptic imagery. And an and, uh, example of this that you can look at is in Daniel 7, where, where, where the beasts come up out of the sea. Or, or in Isaiah 57, where, where the wicked are compared to the sea. See, what John is picking up on is the sea is a symbol of chaos and darkness and evil and disruption. And even within John's own writing in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, um, uh, we see the beast that, that, that comes to, to, to persecute Christians comes up out of the sea. So John is picking up on, on, this, on this Old Testament um, uh, uh, way of representing the, the powers of chaos and darkness and evil, uh, evil through the sea. And when, when I was writing the sermon and imagining what it must have felt like um, to be John in this moment and, and viewing the new heaven and the new earth and, and, and taking it in and, and experiencing that moment where, oh, he notices that there's no longer any sea. My whole body just kind of went, <sighs> like just breathe a sigh of relief. Because I think that, that, that whether um, <clears throat> what John is experiencing here is, is seeing that there was literally no sea and, and understa- understanding what that means or, 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 or being so caught up in, in this heavenly vision that, that can hardly be contained um, within the limits and the finitude of human language. And, and, and in this moment, um, all, the, the only way that he can express um, the, 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 um, the, the, uh, the, the passing away of this old order and, and, and the dawning of the, new, of, the, of the new heaven and the new earth, it, Perhaps the only way that he could express it is, is through this sort of, sort of um, figurative use of language, that there was no longer any sea. What tremendously overwhelming peace must John have felt? Like, like, like getting home after just the worst day of work, and, and your, 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 your brain's fried, and your body's tired, and all you can do is just throw open the door, plop down on the couch, and just... Oh. In verse 2, we see that, that John says, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. One of my favorite things about the Bible is, is the way that, that symbols and images get picked up and, and played with by different authors and, and, and the way that they call back and forth to each other and, and, and ideas get turned on their heads and, and turned around and sort of like what we just saw with the sea in verse 1 and I think that this verse, verse 2, is loaded with that, loaded with all kinds of juicy textual details that, that, that I want to draw out if, you, if you'll let me for a moment. 
Um, so, so the first specific thing that we see in, in this new creation is, is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And, and I think that, that this represents at least a few different things, one of which is, um, is, is the perfected people of God, the, the church. And, and we'll get to that in a moment, but, but, but first, um, I think it represents at least a couple other things. Um, one of which is the finally established rule of God on earth. See, Jerusalem, Israel, what it was supposed to be was a shining example to all the nations of what life with God, of what obedience and, 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 and human culture and human existence was to be. It was supposed to be the theocratic center of the universe. And yet, what did it, what did it turn into? It turned into a nation that, that, that was filled with adultery and incest, civil war, murder, child sacrifice, um, extortion, injustice, cruelty. And yet here in the final account of things, what, what we see is that God has, has finally accomplished what he set out to do. We see the holy city, the New Jerusalem, perfected and redeemed and sanctified and holy and set apart. It's the first thing that we see in the new creation. We see, that, we see that God's rule is finally established on earth. The second thing that, that, that um, I think this holy city represents, I'm going to rip straight out of Eugene Peterson's book on, on Revelation, Reverse Thunder. Um, and what Peterson notes here, which I find so interesting, what Peterson notes is that it would be really, really reasonable for the first thing that John sees in the new creation to be something natural, something like a garden, something like Eden. That, that would make sense. I think in contemporary culture, heaven, heaven is often portrayed this way as fields that extend forever in every direction and, and, and animals playing in the, in the, in the forest and, and, and babbling brooks and, and springs and lakes and snow-capped mountains in the distance. That makes sense. That, that would make a lot of sense. And, and plenty of religions characterize uh, heaven this way as, as a return to the natural and, and as sort of an escape from, from, from all of the, 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 uh, the, the trappings and, and, and the complexities and, and the difficulties of, of human civilization and city life and, and, and all, the, all the dirtiness of that. And yet, that, that's not what we see here. What we see here is a city. The likes of which Peterson, I think, rightfully describes as noisy with self-assertion, forgetful and defiant of God, battering and abusive to persons. And, and Peterson goes on to point out that the first city in Scripture called Enoch was built by the first murderer Cain and was destroyed in the flood. And yet, a city is what we get here. Why is that? Well, Peterson suggests that, that, that it's because heaven is not an escape from the human or from the material, but it's an intensification of it. It's an intensification of what it means to be human. It, it, it's a being human in the way that God intended it to be. And, and all, of the, all of the human cities attempts at order and peace and justice and, and morality and, and, and ethics are here in the New Jerusalem brought to their consummation. They're intensified. Richard Bauckham, another uh, professor of, of New Testament, uh, uh, also um, adds that, 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 that the fact that this is a city provides a canvas for, for um, hu for humanity's eternal creative purposes. He says that as a city, it fulfills humanity's desire to build out of nature a human place of human culture and community. 
So we see here that, 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 that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, represents both God's establishment rule on earth and the fulfillment of humanity's eternal creative purpose. <clears throat> The second thing to notice in, in this verse is actually the direction from which the city is coming. We see that, that John points out that uh, he sees that he sees a city coming down out of heaven from God. And if it wasn't already clear that the, the perfected church, the new Jerusalem, is a result of one person and one person alone, and that person is God. It doesn't happen apart from him. It doesn't happen without him. It happens solely and purely because of him. Perhaps that was obvious, but, but, but something that maybe is a little bit less obvious is the way that this, that this downward meeting of heaven and earth uh, stands in stark opposition to, to, to the upward building of the Tower of Babel, of the way that, that humans in, in their pride sought to, sought to join heaven and earth with the work of their own hands. This uniting of heaven and earth is a God-sized job. The final thing to notice here is, is that the holy city is described as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, a bride adorned for her husband. And I'd imagine that most of us are probably familiar um, with, with, with this um, language that's, that's used to describe the church often in the New Testament. It's very common. But perhaps what we're less familiar with is the way that, 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 that this contrasts with, with um, Another very common image used to describe the people of God um, in the Old Testament, actually, uh, of Israel. And that's as a, as a prostitute, as a harlot. And in Hosea, we read this dramatic narrative of a man who takes a prostitute to be his wife. And, and as you might expect, she's unfaithful to him. And, and, she, and she leaves and, and, and runs away and is, and is unfaithful. And yet he seeks her out and, and draws her back to himself. And yet she leaves again, and so she, he seeks her out and draws her back to himself. And over and over and over again, she's unfaithful, and yet he remains faithful. And we know that there's a prophetic analogy for God's relationship with his people, uh, where, where they are continually disobedient and unfaithful and, and, and leave and serve other gods. And yet God continues to seek out relationship with them. He continues to draw them back to himself. And, and so what we're being led into here in this moment, where, where, where John sees the new city coming down as a bride adorned for her husband, what we're seeing here is the once and forever conclusion to that, to that most beautiful and sincere and, and, and tragic and, and, and wonderful love story. What we're seeing here is the moment at the wedding when, when the music begins to swell and, and the chapel doors at the back swing open and, 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 all, and all the heads of the guests turn to see the bride shining and shimmering and glowing, adorned beautifully for her husband, and she begins to walk down the aisle where she will finally at last be united for her forever to her loving and devoted husband, Jesus Christ. On to verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he will be with them and be their God. And on its own, this verse is totally awesome. Cool. 10 out of 10, great. Sign me up. God's dwelling with his people. Awesome. But what's happening here is also... Is also um, is the final chapter of another image that we've seen playing out across all of Scripture. 
Uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, we, we, uh, we, we know that God has, has perfect communion, that, 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 that he dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden in a sense. And, and, and yet that dwelling is disrupted. It's broken by their sin. So then in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, we see God giving his people um, instructions for life with him. Customs and, and, and laws and, and a way in which to conduct themselves. And, and he says, if you follow my decrees and obey my commands, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. But obviously Israel doesn't follow these commands. They, they, they leave and are unfaithful and, and they suffer and then they repent and come back and this happens over and over and over and over and over again. Until one day, we read in John that the word became flesh, that God became man and, and dwelt among us. And yet that doesn't last either. See, uh, Jesus ascends into heaven and, and promises that he'll return. And so what, so what we're seeing here in this moment is, is that now at last, after thousands and thousands of years, the plan is accomplished. God is dwelling with his people. <clears throat> On to verse 4. John writes, So God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Do you want to know what it means to be in the presence of God? It means that. It means no more death, mourning, crying, pain. In the play Hamlet, there's this moment when, it, when he's listing off all these things that, that make life burdensome. and it's in, it's in the part of Hamlet that everyone kind of knows that to be or not to be speech, soliloquy. And um, when I read this passage, it's like as, as he's listing off these aches of life, that, 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 that he's, as he lists off each one, that you can feel his speech get heavier and heavier and slower, more fatigued, more weary, like he's being weighed down with all these things. And, and when I think about what 2020 was for, for so many people, I, I wonder if it felt like that. Like if it felt like with each passing day, with each passing month, that life just got heavier and heavier. More things got added on. COVID, racial strife, political strife, loneliness, anxiety, depression, death, not being able to meet as a church, not being able to meet with family for the holidays, and then the, the, the politics and, and the, the potential for conflict that ensues when you do try to gather, trying to find childcare, pushing through Zoom school, just trying to live together in the same house. And all the while, 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 while all the weight of that is building up around us, I wonder if there's a weight building up inside of us too. I know there is for me. Keith Dowds um, came and met with the staff probably a month, month and a half ago. And he said something that, that's been convicting me like once a week ever since then. And uh, I, I want to share it this morning. I didn't actually ask Keith if I could share it, so thank you, Keith. Um, Keith, Keith said this. He said that the last season has been really difficult because I, I look around and I see ugliness Everywhere, everywhere. This is, I just feel like I see so much ugliness. But the worst part about it 
is that when I look in the mirror, I see a different version of the same thing. I see a different version of the same thing. I, I know for me that, that there have been so many times throughout COVID that, that, that as much as I want to point the finger and blame other people and say, if you weren't acting that way, then maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in this situation. Or, or if you weren't acting that way, then, 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 then you know, this problem would be solved. But as much as I want to point the finger and, and blame other people for what they're doing, I know that, that, that the sin that I want to call out in them is right here too. It's right here too. And there have been so many times during COVID where it feels like the words of Paul in Romans just, just bubble up out of me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this body of death? And not to put a silver lining on it, but, but, but to, 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 to reaffirm what, what, what we hold to be true is that the, the, the beauty of living life in, in a loving and faithful relationship with Jesus is we know that this isn't the end of the story. We know that it's not the end. And if right now you feel like it's all you can do just to get through the week, know that Jesus is coming. He is coming. And what's even better than that is that he has come. He has already won the last battle. He has already won the war. And, and, and all of the, the darkness and the ickiness and, and, and the murkiness of this past year is nothing but aftershocks and lingering skirmishes of a war that is over. It's over. And maybe it doesn't feel like that's very true for you today. And that's okay. Uh, in, in closing, I, I want to share a story that, that I heard Daniel share, I think, in a sermon a couple years ago. It's really short. It's only like two lines. Um, he said that there was a man who came to a priest and, and, and confessed that he had lost his faith. And, and the priest kindly but, but somewhat slyly responded with the question, Who said it was yours to lose? Who said it was yours to lose? I want to close by reminding us, in, in what I hope is the, is the least hallmark and, and trite and cliche, cliche way that um, God has you. He has you. He cares for you. And he loves you. He's crazy about you. He delights in you. He loves you. And in the midst of all this all this crap and all this chaos and all, and all this darkness and destruction that feels like it's everywhere right now. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Thanks be to God.